exciting to see God's grace in so many lives. Uh, If you would stand with me this morning as we look to Matthew chapter number 10, and we will read verse 24 down to verse 31 when you find your place as we honor God's word and stand to read. Matthew 10, verse 24 to 31. Today we're going to be observing the Lord's Supper, and so it's important to also reflect upon our life as we approach this great time to remember the Lord's death for our sins and His blood that was shed. We'll be doing that at the end of service today. Verse 24, Jesus says, The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple to be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light, and what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. If you read verse 28 with me, and fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. He goes on to say, are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall to on the ground without your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Father, your word again is our delight. And you said that your word is like a hammer. It is what crushes. It is what heals. It is what brings salvation. It is the law of the Lord that makes us wise into salvation. I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, to behold wondrous things out of thy law. Father, be the teacher today. Help me to preach clearly the word of God and may your word bring forth the fruit of salvation and sanctification in this precious body. We ask it in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. You may be seated this morning. Well, today we continue in our study in the marvelous gospel of Matthew. And Jesus had declared at the end of Matthew chapter number 9 that the world was like a harvest field where the souls of men are seen as needing ministers or someone to bring them the gospel. And Jesus said at the end of Matthew 9, pray therefore the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into his harvest field. So we need to be busy about praying for people to go and spread the gospel, ministers, evangelists, pastors, teachers, and even ourselves. In chapter 10, Jesus starts out in just doing that by calling 12 ordinary men to go preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he tells them what to preach in verse 5 through 15 and what to expect. He tells them that they would be like sheep in the midst of wolves. That in verse 16 through 23, that the world would not all be accepting of them, that they would come before religious persecution as well as government persecution. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, and that they would be persecuted, that they would be beaten and even killed for the purpose of preaching the gospel for Christ's sake. Now in verse 24 through verse 42, in this final section of Matthew 10, the Lord gives the keys to being a true and faithful minister, a true and faithful disciple of Jesus Christ that produces fruit. What the Lord unpacks in these final 19 verses applies to all of us today who would want to be used by God. 
Jesus said in John 15, 8, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. And so is your life fruitful? And the way we glorify God and bear fruit for Him and to do the things God calls us to do is to have the right understanding. There are some things in verse 24 through 42 that you must understand in order to be a faithful man or woman of God for Christ. So today we're looking at what does it take to be a disciple. We're going to look at six things today and then we'll look at some more next week. The first thing we come to is in verse 24 and the disciple here must first understand their position, their position. Who are you? How would God define you? And that's what he does here in verse 24 and 5. It says, the disciple, he says, is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. The word disciple comes from the familiar Greek word mathetes. It means a learner, a pupil, a student-teacher relationship, And he says, the disciple is not above his master. The word master there is a Greek word, didaskalos. It means teacher. So the disciple is not above the one who is teaching him. And the Bible teaches when you become a believer, you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. Some have falsely taught that being a Christian is different from being a disciple. That is just not true. Be weary of anyone who teaches the terms believer and disciple mean something different. They are synonymous. The word disciple is used 269 times in the New Testament referring to a true believer. The word Christian is used three times. Acts 11.26 tells us the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So Christian, a disciple, are synonymous. So you must understand you are a learner of Christ. He is your teacher and you are his follower, learning and seeking to imitate your teacher. Secondly is the word in verse 24. He says a servant is not above his Lord, nor the servant above his Lord. The word servant there is a Greek word, doulos. It's actually used 127 times in the New Testament and it literally could be translated as slave. It was the strongest word in the Greek language. There were six different words that spoke towards servanthood in that culture. The strongest one was the word doulos. It meant somebody that would be on an auction block in the Roman times and you would sell that person. They would be purchased and then owned by a master. This is a ownership word and it's used as a metaphor of the believer who belongs to Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 tells us this. It says, what? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which you have of God, and ye are not your own. You are bought with a price. That's slave language. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are whose? They're God's. Uh, you, you, you don't own your life anymore. God is the one in charge of your life. If you're saved, your mind belongs to God. Your time, your resources, your family, all that you have and all that you are now belong to God. You say, uh, I, who owned it before God owned it? Well, the enemy of God owned it. He was controlling you. And so Jonathan Edwards is one of the greatest American theologians. God used him in a mighty way to bring revival to the American colonies. 
brilliant man, preached a message that's the most famous message in the history of America, centers in the hands of an angry God and incredibly used by God. And he said this, he said, I claim no right to myself, no right to this understanding, this will, these affections that are in me, neither do I have any right to do this Uh, to this body or its members. No right to this tongue, to these hands, feet, ears, eyes. I have given myself clear away and not retained anything of my own. I have been to God this morning and and have told him I have given myself wholly to him. I have every power so that for the future I claim no rights to myself in any respect. Henceforth, I am not to act in any respect as my own. He said, if I murmur in the least at affliction, if I am in any way uncharitable, if I revenge a cause for myself, if I do anything purely to please myself or omit anything uh, that is of great denial, if I trust myself, if I make any praise for any good that Christ did in me, or if I am in any way proud, I shall act as my own and not God's, but I purpose to be absolutely His. Is that your heart today? The men of the past and the women of the past who God greatly used realize they are to ride passenger and God is to ride pilot in their life. In Matthew, Jesus taught them how to do this according to God's standard and, and, and how to be great according to God's standard. In Matthew twenty twenty seven, Jesus said, Whosoever will be chief among you, because the disciples were arguing over who was the greatest, And in Matthew 20, Jesus says, whoever wants to be chief, whoever wants to be the greatest, let him be your doulas. Let him be your servant. And guess who acted that way? Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many in verse 28. And so you find that Jesus Christ did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for us. I would ask the question, Are we greater than Christ who humbled himself to serve us? Jesus, who was the king of the universe, came down uh, and physically washed the disciples' feet, but also came to die for us that he might wash us from our sins. The disciples understood this call to be God's servant. Romans 1.1, Paul says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Jude begins his letter that way. Second Peter, Peter writes that. Servant, uh, Simon and Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. They would refer to themselves as a servant of God before they referred to themselves as an apostle. They elevated the office of servanthood above even that of an apostle. And this goes on and on through the New Testament books. So we must understand that we are his disciple. We are to be a follower, a learner, an imitator of Christ. We are also to understand that he owns us. We are not our own. Listen, parents, it's not about you saying what you want your kids to grow up and be. It's about saying what does God want the kids that he entrusted you with to grow up to be. I never want my kids to grow up what they want to be. And I don't want my kids to grow up to be independent. I want my kids to grow up to change from dependency on parents to dependency on God. And I want them to grow up not what they want to be, but what God wants them to be. The American dream is American nightmare. Amen? Amen. Go to Hollywood and learn that story. We, we need to quit putting things before our kids. When you ask them, what are you going to grow up to be? They should say, you know what? I'm, I'm praying about that. I'm seeking the Lord on this. You know, my parents effectively taught me to seek the Lord and His kingdom and all the other things will be added. Let me make sure I'm right with God on this. There should, parents, are you doing that? And if you're not, then are you giving them your best and not God's best? 
Do you really want them to grow up to be successful that's not God-centered? Sure, they can be successful, but, uh, and they can be in the will of God by being successful, but we want to make sure that they're not just worldly successful, but they're heavenly successful. Amen? Do we believe that? Or is that just convicting? I don't know whether you believe it or not. We'll take it. We'll go on. And so I trust you do believe that, and that's what we must apply. And so before we can faithfully live for God, we must understand our position. And, and, and we're also thirdly a member of the family. We see this in verse 25. He, he calls us members of his household at the end of verse 25. He says, they call the, 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 the head of the household Beelzebub. They're slandering me. He says, but you're of my household. And they're going to also do that to you. And, and praise God that we are in God's household. We're in his family. Uh, you are a child of God. If you're saved, you're in his family. God is your father. You're his child. John 1.12 says that you become a child of God through faith in Christ. So, so you must, first of all, to be faithful is understand your position before God. Secondly, you must understand your expectations. You have to have the right expectations. And this is in verse 24 and 5. And and Jesus is setting before us right expectations. I would ask the question, should the student expect more and better things than his teacher? Should the servant expect more and better things than his master? In verse 25, Jesus said, it's enough if the disciple is as his teacher and the servant as his Lord. How How important is it? for us to understand and have right expectations in life. Anybody ever get messed up in life because you had some wrong expectations? You thought something was going to work out like this. It didn't work out. Maybe you expected certain things to happen and they didn't happen. I think expectations are one of the most important things in the life of believers to have correct. Because if a person has wrong expectations, it always leads to discontentment. Discontentment is not an issue of circumstance. Discontentment is not an issue of things going on in your life or things outside of you. Discontentment is an issue of what's going on inside of you. The re- discontentment is the child of wrong expectations. If you're married, uh, you understand uh, when you first got married, maybe your expectations were a certain way, and, and, and now you've maybe modified some of those expectations to more of a reality. Uh, marriages that place expectations on their spouse always end up discontent. Show me a couple that has tension, anger, frustration, and, and they just, it's, it's just hostile at times, things that they don't get along well. At the root of that is they keep placing expectations on things they think their spouse should do instead of on what they need to do. But if they were to switch that and focused on themselves, and not on their spouse, if they drew a circle around their life and said, let me start here and not there where God calls them to, they would find so much more joy and blessing and fruitfulness in marriage. If you have wrong expectations concerning your job, you will be discontent. If you think your boss and co-workers should treat you a certain way, do certain things to help you out, if you go to work and expect that, but if, if on the other hand you go to work and expect, I'm only going to serve at work like I'm serving Jesus Christ. I'm going to go to work and, and if they have me do some tough job, I'm going to do it as I would do it for Jesus and not as unto men. That's why Ephesians 6, 7, talking about employees and employer relationship, he said, with goodwill, doing service, when you're at work, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. 
That's why people get frustrated with each other because they put a horizontal, they create a horizontal motive. They live out their what's in life, but they don't have their why's right. You have to get energized with the right why to fulfill the right what's. And your why has to be energized by the glory of God. That all we do, whether we eat or drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. What if your husband left his plate on the table and you're like, ah, oh, you know, this slob, you know, he left his... But if you're like, you know what, I'm going to serve my husband like I would serve Jesus Christ. And if the husband's like, I can't believe my wife did this over here and left this laundry out and he got all frustrated. But what if he's like, you know what, I'm going to serve my wife like I would love and serve Jesus Christ. They keep turning it as a horizontal motive, a horizontal expectation, what their spouse should do for them instead of what they should do for their spouse. And they need to do it for the Lord. It literally changes everything in life. It had never been a circumstantial situation issue. It's always been an internal issue. Contentment is not an issue of what you are physically in. That's why Paul said in Philippians 4.11, while he's sitting in a nasty prison cell in Rome, he said, I have learned... To be content in whatever state I'm in. To be content. I, I know how to be a base and how to abound. No matter what my situation is. In 1 Timothy 6 he says. We brought nothing into this world. It's certain we can carry nothing out. Having food and raiment. Let us be there with content. None of us believe that. None of us. Because we wouldn't be. Amen. Well, is that food and raiment? Does that mean I don't have this? Does that mean I don't have you? We'd be all we'd be all whiny. We're so Americanized, we can't even fathom this. We don't believe that. We need so much more than food and raiment. I mean, I, I need my sweet and sour sauce. I need my you know sweet tea. I need, yeah, right. I mean, I need a microwave. You imagine? Just imagine if you're. Your, your microwave went out for, and your air fryer. Anybody got a hold of one of them bad boys? Yes, sir. Oh, yeah. The air fryer is a little gift from heaven. God's like, I'm going to give somebody some wisdom. They're going to make this air fryer. It's just fantastic, baby. We, 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 we get so discontent. People say, I just wish my spouse, my kids, my job, my finances would be different. Then I would have peace and contentment. Listen, contentment is not about changing circumstance. Contentment is about changing perspective. That's what Jesus wants them to see here. A passage I point people to probably on a every week or every other week basis is 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7 through 10. Here, Paul, you find him in a place where he's not content because he said, I learned to be content. You have to learn that. You're not born with contentment. I can take you to the toddler class this morning and show you those 20 kids in there are not content unless they have everything that they feel they need. But 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, Paul says, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelation, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. That does not, found, does not sound like a fun thing. Lest I should be exalted above measure. measure. For this cause I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. I, God, I need to get this gone. Lord, I need to have this removed. Can you please take this away? And three different times he's going to God about this thing. Paul thought he couldn't be content in life until these situations in his life, these, these reproaches, these verbal assaults against him, these physical challenges, these persecutions, these hungers, all these things were coming against him. He's like, Lord, I need to have some relief from this stuff. 
And you know what Jesus says? What happens when Jesus' answer is like, I want it to be there? Jesus says, um, and the Lord answered and said, he says, and he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. So what do you do when God says, I want your circumstances to be like that? Listen to me. Discontentment is saying this, God, I deserve better than what you're giving me. You hear me? That's what it's saying. We've all done it. Raise your hand if you've been discontent in the last month or so, last week, last hour. <laughs> so we, we, come on, Josh, you're pressuring me now. But we, you understand, we're not the pilot. He's Lord. Did we forget? And uh, Jesus says, oh, I actually want it there, Paul. Messenger of Satan to buffet you with all these different afflictions in your life, that's actually something I want to have in your life. Because what you don't understand, Paul, is you got pride that's tempting you. And what's more dangerous to you than a messenger of Satan buffeting you is that pride would get a hold of your heart. So let the surgeon have his way. And let him carve off the comforts of your life so that it keeps you humble enough. And by the way, I'm going to let you ask me not once, not twice, but three times until I give you the answer because I want to see how desperate you are of me. Because you aren't the answer to everything, Paul. I've given you so many blessings, so much revelation. You've written 13 books of the New Testament. But you could, you could be tempted with pride. And the greater dan greatest danger in your life is pride. Pride will destroy you. Do you understand sometimes when God answers us quickly, it's out of love. And sometimes when he doesn't answer us quickly, it's out of love. He's always doing what's best. He's always doing what's best. And so we must come to God and say... Am I any better than Jesus that God must answer me on the first prayer? I mean, didn't Jesus in the garden pray once, twice, and three times sweating great drops of blood for me? Am I greater than my teacher and the servant? Am I greater than my Lord? We must have correct expectations. How does Paul respond? Once he finds this out, he says, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ will rest upon me. Sorry, Lord, I actually don't need a change of circumstance. I just needed a change of perspective. Nothing in Paul's life changed except he changed his perspective. He went from seeing his problems through earth's eyes to heaven's eyes. And once that changed, his whole outlook on life changed. Because outlook can determine outcome. That's why I say to you today, contentment is not getting what you want. It's wanting what you have. And contentment is not about circumstance. It's about perspective. You could write that down. That would be probably a very helpful thing to remember. What in your life do you say, God, I need this to change or I'm not going to be satisfied? What, how much better of a life do we need than Jesus? Does anybody here think that your life is harder than what Jesus went through? None of us were born in a manger. None of us had to flee our hometown at two years old because they were killing everybody trying to find us and kill us. None of us were beaten with whips and thrown in, in, in abusive situations and had our beards plucked out and nailed to a cross and died and we lived a perfect life and suffered for the sins of everybody else. Jesus Christ, the Bible says in Isaiah 52, was marred more than any man. How many times do you find in the page of Scripture Jesus complaining? How many times do you say, this isn't, Jesus says, this isn't fair? How many times do we ever read that? We never read it. You know what Jesus' contentment was based on? It wasn't based on circumstance. It was based on the will of God. 
and, and what should make us so unsettled in life is if we get out of line with God. But when, when we're where God wants us to be, that's where the joy is. And that's all that Paul needed to understand. And so, so today, friends, have you, I would ask you this question. What have you allowed to define, to define your expectations in life? What, what are you allowing to define the expectations of your life? What, what, what do you need, scripture or society? What, what, is, what, is, what are you basing it on? Are you basing it on scripture or Facebook? I mean, Facebook. Like what people say. I know not everybody on Facebook is fake book, but there are a lot of times wives can be discontent with their husbands because they saw on Facebook that you know, so-and-so took their husband out or their wife out for her, you know, their anniversary and did all this wonderful stuff. Yeah, you didn't, you didn't see where three months before that they were fighting and living in separate places because he had done so many messed up problems, right? They don't air all that stuff, but they'll throw up the good things. We got to be careful that, you know, again, not, some of that stuff is fine, okay, but, but just be careful. And be careful how much you air about the good things of your life to other people because sometimes they can be in a very desperate situation, guard yourself from being boastful about your own personal glories or anything like that. The Bible says, let other people boast upon you, but not yourself. And so Paul's prayer turned into praise just by getting a new perspective. It's so important for us to get this. I, I see this happen as a pastor. People will say, you know, I can't believe God would allow my loved one to go through this or that. I had a girl one time in a youth group. She said, I can't believe God gave me this STD. You didn't get that, obviously. Sexually transmitted disease. How do you get a sexually transmitted disease? It's not by being pure and holy and righteous like God told you to behave. People do this all the time. They blame God for their own sin. And then they're like, I can't believe God allowed this to happen. Oh, you... oh, really? And even with that, your life is easier than Jesus's. We, we, we believe that our life should be better than Jesus in the way we typically handle things. And, and that's something we should all get on our knees today and say, God, forgive me. You know, there's only two things we deserve. We deserve death and hell. Romans 3.23, for the wages of sin is death. You say, well, I don't like that idea, but it's true. And, and once you realize I deserve to die and I deserve to be separated from God because of my sin, everything above that is blessing. He's given me life and, and, and eternal salvation. And, 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 and so how could I ever be discontent? Thirdly, the disciple entrusts their reputation to God. Look at what verse 25 and 6 goes on to say. He said, if they called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call him of his household? Now, they were calling Jesus Beelzebub, which was a, the name of a Philistine deity, which means Lord of the gnats or the Lord of the flies. And this was a name they called their god in, in Ekron of the Philistine lands because there was a lot of flies in that area. And they, so they get a god who could maybe help them out with this. And uh, so the Jews uh, would, would began to call Satan or, or the devil uh, Beelzebub. And, and so um, th th they changed the name just a little bit. And it began to mean Lord of, not the flies, but Lord of the dung. So they came to Jesus and was calling Jesus Beelzebub or Beelzalel, which means Lord of the dung. What a blasphemous statement to the Lord of glory. They slandered him. They were marring his reputation. 
They were seeking to discredit him. Listen, part of our contentment is to realize as a believer, you can face slander, being maligned and rejected by this world. He said, if they call the master of the house Beelzebub, what do you think they're going to say to those of his household? Discipleship involves sharing the master's rejection. You share in the master's rejection. Are you willing to be maligned for Christ? Are you willing to be potentially lied about, slandered, and untrue things said of you? Matthew 5.11, listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5. He said, blessed are ye when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Is that setting a right expectation? Do we have that in our bank of expectations? I mean, when when people begin to lie about you, what's the first thing you do? Say you got on a social media platform today and somebody said something that you knew was blatantly false. Would you be like, praise God? No. No. Because we just don't think the right way. You know, since living in Xenia and starting this church with eight people and seeing God grow this thing up as he has, um, I have people really speak better of me than what I would deserve. And, and, and I appreciate your grace and your kindness and your love to myself and my family. But through the years, there have been people who've said things that are just completely lies about me or my wife and family. And, and, it's, and it can be hurtful at times, but that's, that's a reality. And one thing God's taught me over the years is to learn to be thankful for those things. And, and, and I've, I, I focus on that. I've got, thank you for this person saying this thing about me that I know is not true and other people are probably affected by it, but... That's what it is. And, but with social media platforms today, you cannot stop slander. You can't. If somebody wants to malign you, there's nothing you can do to stop it. You can get in the mud and start throwing mud with them. That only makes it worse. Silence is usually the best option. But I tell you, tell you this, time and truth always hold hands. What is true will come out in time. Be content when everyone doesn't speak well of you. Be content when your social media posts get some thumbs down. What do you mean they gave me a thumbs down? <laughs> they un- People sometimes will come to me and say, you know, so-and-so unfriended me. I'm like, don't tell me about that. Go to them. I don't even want... So what? Good grief. If you act that way, I'd probably unfriend you too. I don't even do that stuff, you know? <laughs> That's why I don't get on a lot of those platforms. I would get too annoyed. <laughs> you know what Luke 6... I mean, we... we Somebody says we have a hair out of place, we get all frizzied. And our hair does get out of place. The Lord's like, really? I think so many of these things we could bring to God, He's like, have you read anything out of the Bible today yet? I mean, Luke 6, 26 says, woe unto you when all men speak well of you. I mean, it's not good when everybody's always saying great things about you. Friend, how do you respond when spoken evil of? How did Jesus respond? You know, they lied about him. They paid, the religious people of his day paid people to lie about Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He wouldn't even open his mouth to it. And they said, don't you see how many things that are accused against you? You know why Jesus didn't worry about it? Because all he cared about was pleasing his father. And you know what he tells us here in verse 26? How do we respond when people can malign you for being a Christian, lie about you, slander you? He says, fear them not. Don't don't worry about that. For there's nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. You know what he's saying there? 
one day you're going to stand before God in this world that is filled with lies and deception from the media to politics. You can't hardly believe anything that's going on, not trying to be cynical, but the lies that are being permeated. We are a deceiving and deceived world. One day when you stand before God as a Christian, no matter what's been said about you, God knows the truth. Be worried about what heaven thinks of you, not what your social media friends or population or other people think of you. God will right all of those wrongs. Anybody thankful for that? That you will be vindicated. You can be lied about, maligned, and, 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 and listen, argue your side all you want. Get all fired up and get in that debate. Sling mud and you're no better than them. But just be silent. Give that over to God and don't fear them. Say, God, thank you. You know the truth and I'll just keep living for you. Number four, I tell you, to be a Christian, you're going to have to grab a hold of that reality. Number four, disciples proclaim his message. In verse 27, he says this, What I tell you in darkness, that speak in the light. What you hear in the ear, preach on the housetop. Now, the Lord gives his word to us in order for us to spread that message. You know, those who are disciples of Christ make much of the word of God. You ever notice that what people love, they talk about? Uh, What's in the well comes up in the bucket. Like what you truly love, you will speak of. Um, we, people like Caleb and Julia, Danny, Jamel, Ryan, Elizabeth. Uh, there's a lot of these young couples in our church in the last few weeks who've had babies. We've got little babies running around here. Well, they're not running yet. They're being held. But, uh, you know, you get around those young families. They'll be talking about their baby. And, and it, they should because they love that child. And what a wonderful joy. But if you talk to a sports fan, they'll always direct you uh, to conversations about their favorite team. If you talk to someone who loves crafts or shopping, they'll talk about a good bargain. You talk to a hunter, and they'll talk about their last shooting or some gun or something they have going on. If you talk to a teen, they'll text you. (laughs) But the disciple who loves Christ will hear the word of God, and they will tell people about the word of God. Jesus says, what I tell you, you speak it. You proclaim it even from the housetop. You make it known. What you hear in the ear, you preach that. And and what you find is this. You must sit before the word of God, receive from him. Let his word speak into your ear through the study of scripture for you to be able to give out. You can never pour into others what's not been poured into you. Number five, disciples have the right fear. Look at verse 28. He says, behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. That's not a very comforting picture. Uh, He goes on in verse 17 through 23 saying, you will face scourgings, persecutions, and even death. You know, you you could see where the disciples would be like, this is a little bit concerning. I don't feel safe here. Fear could have gripped their heart. So he tells them in verse 26, fear them not. Verse 28, and fear them not. Verse 31, fear ye not therefore. He starts by telling them not who not to fear. So he says in verse 28, fear not them which kill the body. Now, what does that mean? It means this, do not fear people who can simply kill you. Don't fear people who can just like, take your life. You could be a martyr for God, but don't, don't fear that what they could do to your body. God's perspective on death is this, don't be afraid to die. You know, when people get get all worried about death. Oh, I'm so afraid to die. I'm so afraid to die. That, that's reflecting. They have, a, they have a wrong perspective because according to Jesus, you shouldn't be afraid of that. Jesus goes from telling them who not to fear to now telling them who they need to fear. 
He says, don't fear them that can just kill your body, but rather fear him, which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, who's able to destroy your body and soul in hell? It's not Satan. Satan's not our judge. This is talking about God. God can destroy us. He's the one who casts us out of his presence, according to Revelation 20. Did Jesus believe hell was real? You know, Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone in the Bible, and he preached on hell more than everyone in the Bible put together. If there was ever a hellfire brimstone preacher, Jesus was at the front of the line. He is the most hellfire brimstone preacher that has ever lived in the scriptures. Do you know who doesn't preach on hell? Who doesn't preach on the reality of hell? It's Satan. Satan doesn't want you to believe hell is real. Jesus preaches on hell. He taught it clearly. Revelation 20.15 says, Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Even in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would not, uh, whosoever believed in Him would not perish. The word apollomai, it means to be destroyed and cast into hell is what the Greek word means. Would not perish. You wouldn't end up in eternal flames, but you'd have everlasting life. It's packed all through the Scriptures. In Matthew 5, Jesus told them it's better to have your hand removed than to end up continuing in sin and then be separated from God forever. Jesus preached on hell very clearly. People say, how can a loving God allow people to suffer eternally? Pastor Judge, you say God is loving. How can a loving God uh, allow people to go to hell? I don't believe that. Then let me ask you this question. How can your loving God let little children get leukemia and die? Why am I burying four-hour-old babies? In little caskets. Tell me about your loving God. Tell me about your loving God that we go down here to Children's Hospital and some of these little kids have cancer. What did they do to deserve that? What did that child do to deserve the pain he's going through? You know the answer is? The reason that there is both temporary and eternal suffering is because there is sin. What you see in the physical, temporal world is a reflection of the consequence of eternal suffering that's to come. This is miniature suffering compared to the eternal suffering. And the same loving God who allows that to happen on the physical realm will bring judgment in the eternal realm. But He came to save us from sin. Amen? You need to understand, Jesus is not the one who does not preach on hell. Satan is. You know, in Genesis 2, God says, if you eat of the fruit of the tree, you shall surely die. When the woman said, well, we'll die if we eat of that fruit, what did Satan say? Well, you will die. You'll end up in hell if you eat that fruit. Is that what Satan said? No. He said, you will not surely die. A loving God's not going to, you eat that piece of fruit, you think God's going to let you die? Have you seen anything else die, Eve? Everything else is alive. You ain't going to die. Eat that fruit. Enjoy life. Eat, drink, and be merry. There is no judgment from God, though, so severe like that. That's what Satan preaches. I can tell you there's a lot of people in the world that have accepted that lie. Satan doesn't want you to believe in hell. And so the Bible tells us we are to fear God because he has authority over our eternal destiny. Proverbs 1.7 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. You know why fear is the beginning? Because God has designed us with the capacity to have powerful emotions, feelings, and one of those is fear. Actually, the Greek word here is phobia. It's where, uh, 
phobe, which is where we get the word phobia from. And, and, and fear, fear is a powerful thing. People can be said to be paralyzed by fear. Uh, anybody here afraid of snakes? You would say you uh, probably have a phobia of snakes. You see a big snake crawling in your car, you'd be like, yeah, I'm done with that car. Anybody afraid of spiders? Raise your hand. Spiders, okay. I see some hands go up. So um, a couple nights ago, I was getting, getting in bed, getting ready for bed, and I don't know, maybe your wife does this. We live in an old house, big attic, uh, attic, and, um, and our ceilings are real high. They're like 11 foot high. It's an old house, and she always scans the ceiling. You know, she's looking in the corners, she's looking everywhere, and probably once every couple of weeks, she's like, there's a spider, there's a spider. And it's like, man, it's not real easy to get the spider, because you've got to like throw a shoe at her, or find something to hit, and then it falls on the ground, and then if it gets away, you know, she's, so, so it's like, so there's a spider like right above her, I mean like right above her. And I knew, I knew I can't go to bed, but I love to tease my wife, so I was like, oh, it'll be fine, and I turned the light off. She's like, no, it's going to fall right on my face. I was like, no, it's not. I turned the light on. That thing had descended about five feet. It's hovering like right over. Ah, yes. Oh, man, she screamed. Boy, she got out of that bed. It would have been me. It's, you know, my wife yesterday, she's going to be turning 41 next month. She jumped out of an of a airplane yesterday. She is on her bucket list. 14,000 feet, she's jumping out of a plane. Absolutely no fear. You get a little spider coming down, she's done. <laughs> done. So I'm over there beating up the spider. It got a few hits in, but, you know, I'm here today. I won. You know, I took it out. And, uh, but you know one thing that fear does? Fear produces control. Fear produces control. Therefore, whoever or whatever we fear most will have the most control over our lives. When that fear is directed toward God, the product of fearing God is that we will have a life that, that seeks an unwavering obedience to Him. We will reject sin. We will seek to honor Him with our life. A.W. Tozer said, the fear of God is astonished reverence of Him. And, it, and, and according to Warren Wiersbe, it will, it will result in a readiness and willingness to listen and promptly obey His word. People say, well, I thought I was supposed to obey God out of love and not fear. Well, fear and love actually go hand in hand. Fear is the negative side of obedience. Love is a positive side. Love, uh, love prompts one to do what God pleases. Fear prompts one not to do what displeases God. God's word marries these truths together in Deuteronomy 10 verse 12. It says, and now Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God to walk in all his ways. So fear will cause you to walk in his ways and to love him and serve the Lord with all thy heart and with all thy soul. It is the fear of the Lord that causes men to depart from evil, according to Proverbs 8, 13, and Proverbs 16, 16. Didn't Job say, Job feared the Lord and eschewed or rejected evil? The great Puritan Thomas Watson said, as the embankments keep out the water, so the fear of the Lord keeps out uncleanness. 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Paul put it this way, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And so it is, in fact, the lack of fear of God that causes people to live in sin. That's why Romans 3, after the diatribe that Paul lays out about the sinfulness of mankind in verse 11 through 17, in verse 18 of Romans 3, he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. They have no fear of God. Does America fear God? No. 
So all through the Bible, God calls the believer to not live in fear of man, but to fear God. Proverbs 29, 25, in fact, says, the fear of man will bring a snare. Fearing man will cause you to be controlled by their threats, by what they think. Again, Christ told them not to fear them, not to live in fear. Now, here's an interesting truth about fear. Anything you fear in life, in the world, among men, illnesses, cancer, violence, whatever it is, anything that you fear, any phobias you have, produce an unsettled inward spirit. It takes away your peace. But when you direct your fear to God, it is the only one that you direct your fear to that will give you peace. When you fear God most, he gives you peace. When you fear man, he robs you of your peace. That's why Isaiah 26, 3 says, Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. You know, I feared my father growing up. Not that he would hurt me or anything like that, but I had a reverence for him. And I had a lot of peace when my dad was with me. And I'm sure many of you felt the same way with a godly father or a godly mother. My mother was the same way. Actually, my mother would probably be tougher than my dad. She, you know, you mess with mama bears, cubs. I mean, I could be a 6'5 cub and she'll still take you out, you know. I don't want to tell you the stories of me being on the football field and she's yelling at the other team. I'm like, mom, stop yelling. You know, get off my Joshy. I'm like, don't say that. I'm, you know, I'm... <laughs> You don't say that, Mom. She's like, if you ever get hurt on that field, I'm coming out there. I'm going to, like, break my leg. I'm like, Mom, I'm coming, all right, I'm coming off the field. You know, all right. She come out there and beat somebody up on the field, you know. What, what a joy to have people that love us, but to have God who loves us. You know, Jesus says, don't fear those who can kill your body. Be more concerned about your eternal destiny than your temporary body. Care more about your spirit than your flesh. Now, as I close with one last point, in light of these great truths of fearing God, he wants to bring them to another wonderful reality in verse 29 through 31. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall to the ground without your father? What he wants them to know, according to verse 29 through 31, is is the, the value that they have in the eyes of God. The disciple understands their value in the eyes of God. Now, in those days, people were poor. Uh, they would eat little. They would eat birds, little little sparrows, and and you could sell them for a farthing, which would really equivalent to like a penny in our day. Very, very inexpensive. It's like you could buy two birds for a penny, and according to Luke twelve, you can buy uh, five birds for two pennies. They would throw a discount in there. You know, they understood quantity discounts in those days as well. But these were very insignificant animals, very cheap. Like a bird dies, you're just like, you know, it's just a bird die. You ever have a bird fly into your window? You know, all the women are upset and the guys are like, dumb bird, you know. Um, you know, I, I confess, you know, when I read this the first time as a young man growing up, I was really bothered because I, I grew up out in the country and I'm like, man, I killed a lot of birds with a BB gun. And every one of those birds that fell to the ground, God knew about. <laughs> he knew their names. This is, yeah, so... But, but, but the significance of this is this. There will be people throughout history that could be sitting in a prison cell for the things of God. They could be in a family in Ohio where they're the only Christian and they feel isolated. 
You could be the only person at work and you're like, what is worth living for God? I feel so alone. I feel like I'm all by myself. Nobody even knows what I'm doing for God. And Oh, God sees it. There's not even a bird that will fall to the ground and die without the Lord knowing it. And he says, you want me to know, let you know how much he knows you? Verse 30, the very hairs of your head are numbered. You're born with about 100,000 hairs. The average head has 150,000 hairs. Uh, some of you are hurting that average. Okay. But let me say this. There is not a wife that's ever lived that a husband loved her enough to care about counting her hairs. There's not been a husband alive that the wife cared enough about him to count his hairs. There's not a baby alive that the mom cared enough to count every individual hair. We don't even understand this capacity to value something like that. You are so valued that out of the 8.1 billion people in the world, God has over the 8 trillion number of hairs counted and he has assigned a number to every single one of them. God knows you more than you can even comprehend. In fact, there has never been a moment of your existence that you've been off of his mind. He is actively thinking about you. That's why Psalms 139, 17, and 18, it says, How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count and number them, they are more in number than the sand on the seashore. You're kidding me? When I awake, I'm still with thee. God thinks about you more than anyone has ever thought about you. You're valuable. You're valuable. Fear the one who values you. Fear the one who will give you peace and eternal life and rescue you from death, hell, and judgment to come. Fear God and know that you are valued. You, you, know, you know the price tag that hung around your neck for God to have you in his family? The price tag that hung around your neck was the blood of Jesus Christ. And the Lord said, I'll pay that for you. You're precious in his eyes, friends. So don't fear the world. Don't fear what they'll think about you. You worry about what God thinks. Don't fear what they'll physically do to you. God will take care of you. And don't fear if the world devalues you, thinks you as nothing. He knows the hairs on your head. And I close by asking you this. Do you understand your position before God? Are you a disciple, a child of God? Do you understand you are a servant of His? Are your expectations right? Have you allowed the Word of God to define your expectations or the world? Maybe in life you don't need a new situation. Maybe you just need a new perspective this morning. Trust God with your reputation. Don't live in the fear of man. Does your mouth show you love God and His Word? Freedom from the fear of men will start by fearing God. What you fear most will control your life. And remember today, friend, you are precious in the eyes of the Lord. Mm -hmm.